Sorry, I've um, got a bad headache, so I'm not feeling very well. <coughs> yeah. Any idiot can survive a crisis. It's the day-to-day living that wears you out. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. This is from Luke chapter 5 verses 1 to 11. If you'd like to turn there and have a look while we go through it. As I said, any idiot can survive a crisis. It's the day-to-day living that wears you out. And this was wearing Peter out. Nothing. Nothing. Empty nets. They'd been fishing all night, working hard, working very hard, and nothing. Not a thing to show for it. Just blisters, frayed nets, and probably a few frayed nerves. But fish? No, nothing. If they were recreational fishermen, well, that would be okay, I guess. But this was their profession. This was their living. This was how their family survived. And fishermen were not wealthy at the best of times. They were tired, they were exhausted, they were sore. But worst of all, the anxiety was gnawing at the back of their minds. What if tomorrow night is the same? And the night after that? There were rumours. Rumours that the fish stocks were getting low. All those new fancy fishing boats down the coast with their new Roman technology. All that fish being sent off to feed the Roman garrison at Caesarea. Blinking Romans. No doubt they'd be here soon to collect their taxes, the Romans and that sleazy traitor Matthew. Another night of no fish, and then how am I going to pay that tax? Life is hard. So hard. But here comes that new bloke, Jesus. Here he comes along the shoreline, he's spinning a few of his yarns. Maybe he'll do a few of his tricks. 
That one turning water to wine was pretty good. No idea how he did that, but I don't mind if he does it again. Great wedding party, that one. It's a nice diversion for a while, I guess, watching him charm the crowds. Makes a change from worrying about the fish, or the Romans. Makes the time go by. He's okay, I guess, bit of a laugh. Actually, he's a pretty decent bloke, really. He is a bit too friendly with the Romans. And he's far too friendly with the sleazy tax collectors. But, oh well. That's life. So here in Luke 5, we find Jesus. It's fairly early in his public ministry. And he's on the shores of what's most commonly called Lake Galilee. Luke calls it here Lake Genesaret, and John often calls it Lake Tiberias, the same lake. Already Jesus has made quite a hit with the public, because he has such a crowd listening to him that he's overwhelmed. So Jesus asks Peter and crew to take him out on the boat so he can preach to the crowd from offshore. This immediately gives us several insights. Jesus was a man of the people. The people loved him. He mixed with them freely. He related to them on the level they were, whoever they were, wherever they may be. He touched them, he held them, he ate with them. In a world where it was considered that sin was contagious, he freely lived life with those considered the most despised and corrupt. But he also lived a sustainable lifestyle, at least until the time he came to give his life on the cross, when the time was right. But in his ministry, he would often take a step back sustainably if things got too much. He was and is God, but he was fully human. And a model to us of the ideal human. And so when the crowd became too overbearing, he would tactically withdraw. Knowing this was for the greater good. So here he asks Peter and crew to take him offshore in their boat so he can preach from there. It's an interesting technique, and it's one that Jesus goes on to employ on future occasions. For example, in Matthew 13, when he tells the parables of the four soils, again, he's preaching from offshore on a boat. For the same reason. But preaching and religious stuff belonged in the temple and the synagogues. That's what we built them for, wasn't it? Boats. Now, they were built for fishing. They were built for real work in the real world. Don't you know that, Jesus? 
It's an innovative strategy, isn't it? Rather than his message being smothered by the crowd, Jesus takes a look around at the natural environment and the people and the equipment available and partners with them to communicate in the most effective way. Along the shore where this event takes place, there's a zigzagging series of steep inlets with each forming a natural theatre. Even today you can go there, go offshore in a boat and you can talk at a regular volume to anyone on the slopes and they can hear you easily. More easily, in fact, than if you were on shore. I wonder if Jesus has any lessons for us in this. For you, or for I, or for us together. Are there ways that we can use what is already there to reach people more effectively? Are we willing to be innovative, to think outside of the box? Or will we want to send Jesus back to where he belongs? Politely, of course. When Jesus finished preaching, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signalled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. I just love Simon, or as Jesus nicknamed him, Peter. And in those those days it was a nickname, not a proper name. A nickname that meant rock. And this is the first time we find in Luke the use of that nickname, which is significant. To call someone a rock was to say he was tough and strong and stable. But with Peter we can never quite tell whether Jesus meant this as a compliment or as an ironic joke. Probably a bit of both. Sometimes Peter is as tough and as solid as a rock and sometimes he's entirely the opposite which is why I love him. There are many delightful and typically human and humorous aspects to Peter in the New Testament. And this is one of them. Because if we haven't read the preceding chapters of Luke, it seems that here is the first time Peter sees Jesus doing his wonderful stuff. Because it's here in Luke that Peter first falls at Jesus' feet in astonishment and awe. So it begs the question, 
What on earth did Simon Peter think was going on just one chapter before when Jesus comes to Simon Peter's own house and instantly and miraculously heals Simon Peter's own mother-in-law from a raging fever? It's definitely the same Simon because though he's just called Simon and Luke, the other Gospels say it was Simon Peter, the brother of Andrew. It's him, all right. But in the former incident, there's not a hint of his reaction. It's like he's oblivious to the whole thing. You know, in those days, a raging fever could kill someone. Jesus comes to his house, heals his mother-in-law, Peter's wife rushes through to the dining room, ooh, it's a miracle. And Peter's like, nothing, nothing, there's nothing going on. I'm guessing he's sitting there eating his dinner, reading the sports section of the Galilee Daily News, and all he hears is blah, 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 mother-in-law, miraculously healed, blah, blah, to which he responds, that's nice, dear. <laughs> but when Jesus helps him catch some fish, now that's a miracle that gets his attention. I wonder if we are equally slow to recognise the miracles Jesus is already working in our lives and our community. I think I am. Perhaps as well as praying for Christ to work miracles, we should ask God to open our eyes so that we appreciate the miracles he is already doing then we would be less likely to fall into frustration and despair and we would be more likely to seize the opportunities to partner with Jesus in his mission out there. It's not easy to follow Jesus though. In fact, it's hard, very hard. In this passage, we see this demonstrated in a variety of ways. Now, in reading the Bible, we have to be careful we don't read into it metaphors that aren't actually there. But I think given that Jesus and the Gospel writer Luke, who are themselves both using fishing as a metaphor for mission, then we are intended to make that application through this passage. And so the first lesson for us is this, that what is required is a degree of perseverance and trust despite the wearisome work it may entail. As we've heard, Peter and crew have slogged away all night and achieved nothing. Maybe you also feel there are areas in your life where you have worked and worked and worked to bring positive transformation, to bring the kingdom of God to a troublesome situation, and nothing has worked. Perhaps it's some situation in your whanau or family. Perhaps it's some difficult relationship you have with a person. 
Perhaps it's some scenario at your school or place of study or in your workplace. Perhaps it's some issue in broader society. Perhaps it's some trouble within your own self that bothers you. You have tried and you have tried and you have tried and you have tried and nothing has worked. Well, here Jesus calls Peter to cast the net out again. That's not what Peter wanted to hear. Peter wanted to hear, give up, Peter. But Jesus, he's such a jolly nuisance. Jesus calls Peter to cast the net out again. However, Jesus made a couple of crucial changes to the strategy. Firstly, and obviously, it was a different time. It was daytime rather than nighttime. Secondly, Jesus told Peter and crew to head out into the deep waters rather than the shallows they were used to fishing in. Now we might ask why Peter and crew had not tried moving out into the deep water themselves during the night. Of course, Peter could not have known where in that huge expanse of water the fish were. He he couldn't have known that. But I can tell you what Peter did know. He knew where the fish were not. The fish were not in the spot they were fishing. The fish were not there in the first hour of the night. The fish were not there in the second hour of the night. And the third hour of the night, not there. Fourth hour, not there. Fifth hour, strangely, they were not there. Sixth hour, the fish are still not where they are not. Seventh hour, no fish. Eighth hour, amazing as it might seem, the place where there are no fish still has no fish. Would you believe it? What were Peter and crew thinking? Well, I'm pretty certain I know what they were thinking. They were thinking something along these lines. We've always done it this way before. And obviously, at some stage in the past, it had worked very well. It may have worked very well for a very long time. It might even work very well in the future. But at this present time, the fish have moved on. Why do you think Peter and crew didn't try changing their fishing strategy sooner? Perhaps it was pride. Perhaps they didn't want to admit that what they were doing was not working. I make that mistake frequently. I pass that point where what seemed like a good idea, what might even have been a good idea for a while, reaches the point where it is clear and obvious it is not working. 
that I don't want to admit it. I don't want to admit it to myself, I don't want to admit it to others, and I don't want to admit it to God. Because it's embarrassing. But you know, once you pass that point where something is not working, postponing the inevitable is not going to make it any easier. It's only going to get worse and worse and worse. Yes, it is embarrassing to admit something has failed. But you know, that's life. Life's full of embarrassment. You start life nude and bald. If that doesn't give you a pretty good indication of what lies ahead, I don't know what will. And then at the end of life, well, I can tell you this. I've seen a lot of dead people. I've seen more dead people than anyone else here, possibly. I've seen a lot of them. And I can tell you, they put you in a box with a lot of frilly, ugly lace. They give you a haircut only your mother would love and pile on the cheap makeup. That's embarrassing. You start life in embarrassment, you end life in embarrassment. Life's full of embarrassment. Learn to live with it. Don't spend your life trying to hide your inadequacies and your failures. All that does is keep you fishing in the same old spot long after the fish have moved on. But maybe it wasn't pride that kept them fishing in the same spot. Perhaps it was the effort required to try something different. They were tired. They'd been working hard. And the thought of trying something new just seemed to require more energy than they could bear to expend. It's crazy, isn't it? But it's human nature that when we're exhausted, we have this stupid mindset that tells us we're better to conserve energy by continuing doing the same thing that's causing the exhaustion. This is the same genius strategy our mind comes up with when we're watching late night TV and we won't get off the couch and go to bed because we're too tired to go to bed. Yes, it does take energy to change direction. But in the long run, it is more energy efficient. If you are using a strategy to attempt to bring God's kingdom transformation to your personal life, to your family life, to your relationships at work or school or your ministry area, and that strategy is no longer working then now is the right time to change. Now is the time to invest time and energy and resources into praying about and thinking about and researching what God might want you to do instead and how to do it. And the third, and probably 
The most likely reason Peter and crew didn't want to change fishing location was fear. Jewish people of the biblical era had a somewhat superstitious fear of the deep waters. It was in the deep that monsters lurked. That is why at pivotal stages of salvation history, God demonstrates that he is Lord of the deep waters and not the scary monsters. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God is declared to be where? Over the deep waters. When God brings the Jewish people out of slavery, the decisive moment is when God takes the Jewish people through the Red Sea. In the ministry of Jesus, he walks across the deep waters and calms the storm when they are at their fiercest and scariest best. In Revelation, the beast comes out of the sea. And in Revelation 21, when everything is put right, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the phone, from the, not from the phone, no, no. <laughs> I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There was no longer any sea. The point is not that God does not like the sea and sea creatures. God created the sea and sea creatures. God thinks they're a beautiful part of his creation that he described as good. But the point is that God is Lord of the deep waters. Not the scary monsters that the Jewish people thought was lurking out there in the deep. What and who are the scary monsters out in the unknown deep waters that keep you locked in the same old futile patterns? You're probably not quite sure. You just know they're out there somewhere. And so whenever you go to move out into the deep, you find yourself retreating back to the same old shallows. In mission and ministry, in our work to spread Christ's love and forgiveness and truth within our families, our neighbourhoods, our workplaces, our nation, our global community, we are called to be the people of the living God. But instead we so often act and live as if we are people of a dying God. In the 60s and 70s it was the atheists who pronounced that God is dead. Now the people I hear it from most often are his disciples. God is dying. 
the church is retreating. The end is nigh. The world is in ruins. The end is coming. The sky is going to fall on our heads. The Muslims are going to eat us and the liberal atheists are going to chew on our bones. (laughs) Well, your favourite author might know that the end is nigh. But if so, he or she has an insight our Lord Jesus Christ did not have. Because the Lord we worship said, no one knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son. Only God the Father. The end could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be in 2,000 years. Or 10,000. But I'll tell you what else. Even if it is today, the instructions from Jesus remain the same as they ever were. I am the Lord of the deep waters. You sail out into the deep and get fishing and prepare for a catch. If Christ comes today and finds you fishing, then well and good. If Christ comes in glory and finds you arranging his funeral, now that's embarrassing. (laughs) The last thing I want to note from this passage is that mission is costly. Even when successful, it comes with a cost. We see here the net is so full that, they, that it begins to break. It says the net is breaking in this, in this passage when they're hauling up the net. The net is breaking, it's so full of fish. If we're going fishing with Jesus, are we prepared to accept the consequences? Many churches have prayed and prayed for people to come to Christ and to join them in their church. And you know what? When it happens, some of the very folk who prayed for it don't like it. The old net, the old ways of doing things, begins to break. I've seen that firsthand myself in a church I belong to. And I've heard similar fishy tales from many others. Mission is about calling people to become like Christ, not to become like us. If we're really serious about mission, we need to be serious in accepting the cost. I listened to Chuck Smith, the founder of of the Calvary Chapel movement, describe what he called the the pivotal moment for their mission. They were one of the first churches to really seek out to the lost, lonely and messed up young hippies of the 60s in the USA. And they were having some success in doing this. But one day, the church folk decided all these loose-living young hippies that had begun coming to church were making a mess of the new carpet. For some reason, the church folk put the blame down to the hippies' bare feet. I still don't get this part of the story. Why they should think bare feet would make a greater mess than shoes, I've no idea. 
It sounds just like a silly excuse, but okay. So anyway, one day Chuck the pastor comes to church and finds on the door a sign, no bare feet allowed. So Chuck called a meeting with the church folk and he said, okay, so we have a problem. We have a beautiful new carpet. The hippies are making a mess of the carpet. We need to keep the carpet looking beautiful. Okay, that's a problem. Here's the solution. We roll up the carpet and put it into storage. That way it will stay looking new for years to come. (laughs) Problem solved. The church folk decided dirty carpet wasn't so bad after all. Mission is costly. King David said, I will not offer to the Lord in sacrifice that which costs me nothing. Mission will cost you something. It might not be that we have to tear up the carpet. It could go in another direction entirely. It could be that being messy and disorganised is a hindrance to our mission. It could be that we have to sacrifice the luxury of leaving someone else to clean up after us so that when new people come into our facilities, they find it hospitable and inviting. If that is a cost that aids the mission, are you prepared to pay it? It could be we need less music in the services. It could be we need more music in the services. It could be we need shorter sermons. It could be we need longer sermons or later services or earlier services. Whatever it is, are you willing to lay down your personal preferences at the feet of Jesus and say, thy will be done? (coughs) To say to him, I was the captain of my fishing boat, but I give you the command. Whatever it is, mission will cost you something. Nets will break. But going fishing with Jesus will cost us more than a few broken nets. This is why when Peter has this moment of insight into who Jesus is, he recoils in fear. He says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. Get out of my boat. Get out of my neighbourhood. It's all very well saying we want to draw near to God, to have an encounter with God, but when we finally find him, we discover he's much scarier than any scary sea monsters. Yes, Jesus loves us, that's why he says, do not fear. But he loves us so much that he will not leave us as and where we are. Don't worry. Jesus will not hurt you. He only wants to kill you. He only wants to put you to death. He wants to put to death the parts of you that are selfish, bitter and unforgiving. The parts of me and the parts of us that cause squabbles and lies and gossip. And this is what Peter suddenly realised, had a glimpse of. 
and why he recoiled in fear. To follow a holy God, to follow Jesus, would mean leaving everything behind, leaving it all on that beach, leaving the fish and the boats and his livelihood. That was hard. But that was not the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing to leave behind was his very self. His own selfish desires. His own way of doing things. His authority to be the captain of his own boat. This is the crucial decision if we are to be effective in mission. In bringing God's kingdom to life in Papua Nui, Redwood, Harewood, Bishopdale, in our families, our schools, our workplaces, our communities. For we know, don't we, that the number one obstacle to people finding life in Christ is not our strategy, but what they see when they look inside of us, what they see when they look at our lives. We can have the greatest mission strategy in the world, But if people look at us and see people who are full of grumbling or full of greed, a strategy means nothing. We might be successful. We might breed a successful family. We might build a profitable business. We might even build a large ministry or a successful large church. To some extent. But whatever it is, It will not be Christ's kingdom come to life. For Christ's kingdom is only present when we leave our selfish desires flapping and stranded on the shore behind us. 